Welcome back to Masterpiece in Progress. And we're in week three. Uh, in week one, we understood that God's masterpiece has to start with a blank canvas. Uh, last week, we saw how Jesus tones the canvas to blot out our broken lives and broken identities. And this morning, uh, we're headed to John chapter 18 where we're going to start seeing basic shapes on the canvas. And once again, Mrs. Caitlin Mai will be working on the canvas on stage throughout the message. And I know that uh, some of you are going to have some good guesses as to what the final painting is going to be uh, at the end of the series. But I have to warn you, you probably won't be able to figure it out until the very end of the final step. That's how the masterpiece process works. And don't forget, uh, two weeks from today is our Memorial Sunday breakfast out in the gymnasium at 9.30, and there's no first-hour classes that Sunday. So invite somebody to come with you for the food and then for the service to follow. Uh, also in your bulletin this morning, there is an important survey that we need you to please fill out that would be beneficial uh, to the entire church body and you can hand it in at Connection Point uh, right after the service. Hope you'll join us for worship and communion tonight at 5.30. And it's always a very special service, and we're looking forward to getting together tonight to observe the Lord's table. Okay, John 18, starting in verse number 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, Cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake. Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my Father hath given me. Shall I not drink it? I want you to go with me back to this moment in the garden. The followers of Jesus had to be completely devastated. For three years, they could taste the dream that their countrymen had dreamed for hundreds of years. The prophet had said that redemption was on the way. Safety, freedom, blessing, a Messiah. And they were certain that they had found the Messiah. His claims, his teachings, his love, his miracles, so many confirmations of his identity. And out of the many thousands of people who had followed Jesus at some point during those years, nobody was more confident in his identity than Peter. Peter followed Jesus. But you know, Peter followed Jesus 
with his own masterpiece in mind. Peter was completely invested in his own idea of God's big plan. And this shaped a counterfeit identity in him. He had shaped himself, his world, even his God, to his own ideas. And this morning, we're going to see that we often do the same thing. We shape ourselves, our world, our God, even his word, to mean what we want it to mean. We try to paint the masterpiece ourselves instead of receiving the masterpiece from the heavenly artist. And so let's talk about Peter this morning. And the notes are in your bulletin. They're also on the YouVersion app. And of course, we have a children's bulletin for the kids. You know, for Peter, identity loss came that night when Jesus was arrested in the garden. Uh, The disciples had met with Jesus earlier for dinner and They had heard him speak very frankly with them. But instead of really taking in what Jesus was saying, Peter and his friends began to quarrel over who would have the highest seat in the new kingdom that they all envisioned was coming. You imagine this, right? Jesus is telling them the most important talk he's ever given them, and they're starting to argue about who's going to sit on Jesus' right hand in the kingdom. And so they may have been a little bit distracted, and their walk ended at the garden where Jesus often prayed. You might remember that he prayed while they slept, and they were jolted from sleep by the voices of a crowd and the clanking of chains, and all of the sudden, a shot of adrenaline went through Peter's system, and he jumped to his feet. And let's look first this morning at saving the Savior. Saving the Savior. <laughs> Earlier that night, Peter had vowed to defend Jesus to the death. And as promised, he delivered a spectacular performance. Launching his weak self into the storm of the ages, he, he grabbed his sword, swung into action, lops off the ear of Malchus, aiming for his head, and there's chaos everywhere. And then Jesus, as he has done so often in chaos, calms the scene, rebukes Peter, heals Malchus, and then unthinkably surrenders to the authorities. And that, folks, is when identities shattered. The disciples were left trying to anchor their identities to something, to anything. What had just happened? They had invested their whole beings into Jesus' claims. Or or should we say their idea of Jesus' claims. And Peter was trying to save Jesus from being arrested because that action aligned with his fragile identity, even though it didn't align with God's plan. Here's Peter sleeping while Jesus prays, resisting while Jesus submits, and his will is completely at odds with God's will, but he thinks it's not. Now, maybe you've been there. You constantly feel like you have to take action, like you have to come to God's rescue because he's not working fast enough or good enough to meet your approval. God, you're not answering those prayers like I need you to. 
Right? You're not moving things like I want you to. Moses thought that he had to carry the weight of Israel on his back. Elijah thought that he was the only one left who cared about the things of God. Paul thought that he was serving God by persecuting Christians. And Peter knew better than Jesus himself did. Now, could I let you off the hook? I'll try to help you with something. Being God is not your responsibility. Okay? You don't have to carry that burden. By the way, you couldn't possibly carry it. You don't have the right. You don't have the power. You don't have the burden of painting the masterpiece. Knowing about tomorrow is not your responsibility. Your job is to trust and obey today. And then trust and obey the next day. And guess what you do the next day? Trust and obey again. See, we don't get the privilege of seeing out the front of the plane. That's the pilot's job. We just get to look out the side windows and enjoy what's happening right now. And so it's a matter of trusting and obeying. But Peter, he was confused, and he thought that he had to save the Savior. He's got to help God out. And there's a lot of people who fall into that trap of thinking, boy, I really got to bail God out on this one. God, you really messed this one up, right? And we have events that happen in our family lives. We have events that happen internationally and nationally and elections and diseases and all these different things. And sometimes we come to God, God, you're messing it up, right? And that's what Peter felt in the garden that night. Jesus, what in the world are you doing? Let's talk about this second part, the devastating denial. The devastating denial. Jesus, this is in Luke 22, if you're keeping the box score, that Jesus had warned Peter earlier in the evening that the big test was coming. Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. And Simon Peter adamantly stated that he would never deny Jesus. And now Peter's identity was smashed against the rocks of failure. He couldn't save Jesus from the mob. Everything was in question. He followed from a distance, confused, dazed, in shock. Peter waited outside the priest's house where Jesus was being tried. They called it a trial. And flames danced in the night as the rogue crowd thirsted for Jesus' blood, which he would willingly offer just hours later. And Peter's thoughts must have raised as he sank down into this quicksand of doubt and confusion. Uh, during those dreadful hours outside that house, it tells us in all four Gospels that at three different points in time, Jesus' most vocal defender forcefully denied that he even knew Jesus. And then in the distance, a rooster crowed. And at that moment, a battered and bound Jesus, this tells us this at the end of Luke 22, turned and looked directly at Peter. 
their eyes locked. And Peter remembered the Savior's words from hours that seemed like days before. What he had done became crystal clear. His overconfident self crumbled into pieces. He had no idea that Jesus was looking at him with love, envisioning redemption. All Peter could see was shame. And when you've fallen and you've failed and you've denied Jesus, maybe that's all you can see is shame. Right then, it's hard to see the approval of your Savior. It's hard to see his love for you. All you see in the mirror is your own failure. Now, we can look back at this moment and how, how God was shaping and working on the masterpiece of Peter's life. See, weak Peter had to be lost so that strong Peter could emerge. Before Peter could have a durable gospel identity, he had to lose the fragile identity that he had built for himself. And for the sake of the masterpiece, God is making in each of us, let's trace the defining of Peter through the message this morning. Peter grew up a, a poor kid in this scorned Jewish subculture, uh, a fisherman. Fishermen were not well-liked in Jewish society, right? The only thing worse was pig farmers uh, <laughs> and maybe tax collectors, right? Sorry, Tamara, I didn't mean that as an insult to you. This is Jewish culture we're talking about here, not Canyon County, all right? So, uh, but he, he's a fisherman. And uh, not the most well-liked thing in Jewish society. And later in life, uh, he became successful enough at the trade of fishing to provide for his family in Capernaum, right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it wasn't a spectacular business by any means, but it was successful enough uh, for him and his family to live in this beautiful place and get by. And, and then Jesus invited him to be one of his followers. Peter uh, left his ship on the shore and followed Jesus. And he began to identify himself uh, as a Jesus follower, uh, as a revolutionary, maybe as a future cabinet leader in the Messianic kingdom. For a couple of years, uh, his sense of self grew larger. His identity seemed strong. Uh, he was even willing from time to time to tell Jesus he was wrong. But it was all a fraud. It was self-strong, full of pride. It was artificial, strong in appearance only. Peter hijacked God's narrative and built his own version of self. And we tend to do the same thing, don't we? We mentioned a while ago that Peter thought that he could be the savior of the savior. And now, hours later, he was just a failure. Embarrassed, humiliated, vulnerable, and so are we. And he went out and wept bitterly, facing total brokenness. Even the news of the resurrection was like the sun on a cloudy day. It never shined completely through Peter's depression and discouragement. A few days later, 
He reverted back to being a Galilean fisherman, still trying to figure out his identity, having no idea that Jesus' story for him was bigger and more beautiful than he could have ever imagined. And through the scriptures, we can witness Peter's story from afar, not comprehending that Jesus desires to do the same work in us. His big picture is better than what we could possibly imagine. But so many times, uh, we mutiny. We, we practice mutiny against God's plan. We hijack the story. But sometimes you identify with strong Peter, uh, knowing who you are, flourishing in confidence. Sometimes you identify with weak Peter, losing your sense of self, floundering in confusion. Peter was clearly deceived by two things. I want you to think of these two things for a minute. Uh, first, he thought his success was durable. Right? He thought his success was going to continue. He thought his success was guaranteed. And that's what a lot of people think, right? Not only about themselves, but about their families, or about their job, or about their city, or about their nation. They think their success is durable, right? Uh, do you know that all successful countries in the history of the world thought that they would continue to be successful countries? And then all of a sudden, they were no longer countries. They thought their success was durable. Peter thought that his success was durable. And then, listen to this other one. He thought his failure was final. Once he messed up, he thought, that's it. I can never be used by God again. He thought that his failure was final. And so many times we think that. I'm guessing that we've all jumped on board with one or both of those concepts. Either we have thought that our success is durable on our own, or we've thought our failure is final. And that leads us to this third part of Peter's life, and really the part where we want to grasp the attention today. The failed fisherman. The failed fisherman. It's number three. Imagine with me, as the first pale glow of light crept its way over the eastern hills there above the Sea of Galilee, it had been another long night of failure in a long string of failures that began the night Jesus was arrested. And here we find this in John 21. We find Peter uh, frustrated, fatigued, floating in an empty fishing boat. He couldn't get anything right. Now, you think about it, he was a failed disciple, a failed revolutionary, and now even a failed fisherman, right? Have you ever messed up at what you're supposed to be good at? Right? How difficult is that, right? It's like Michael Jordan missing a free throw. It's like, I'm supposed to be the best at this, and I can't even do this. And so he's failed at all these things, and you can almost see him in that boat kicking the side of the boat, muttering under his breath all night long. He was tired. He was hungry. He is agitated. The fishless nets were just cruel reminders of his long string of letdowns. And Peter's soul 
was as empty as his boat, drifting with no place to land. See, Peter had lost every dream he had ever dreamed. And right now, he had no answer to the question, who am I? <laughs> right? He's like, who am I now? He rubbed his bleary eyes. Man, he needed some sleep. His emotions swung wildly as he continued talking to himself. Have you ever talked to yourself? Three years of dreams gone. Time wasted. But who is that on the shore? There was a distant figure. There was a wisp of smoke. There's this faint smell of flame-broiled fish that reminded him how hungry he was again. You know, we're all like Peter. A bit of success sprinkled over a boatload of failure. And yet, there's Jesus grilling fish on the seashore just a couple hundred yards away. Now, most people, most Christians never get out of that empty boat where their soul is broken and go and get restored by Jesus. Right? Jesus has the power. He's got everything we need to complete the masterpiece, but we don't ever go through the reconstruction process because it's hard and it hurts and we feel like God's after us. And we feel like his plan is beating us up. Let's talk about the radical reconstruction. This is the fourth part, and we'll spend some time here this morning. You know, identity loss feels like a huge step backward. But actually, it's God's first step forward. And it seems like nothing but a pile of letdowns and questions. But yet it's God's way of saving us from ourselves so that he can put basic shapes on the masterpiece. But Peter had heard Jesus teach on identity on more than one occasion. Right? See if you remember this from uh, more than one of the Gospels. Jesus said this, For whosoever will save his life will lose it. And whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Luke 14, 26, it became even more abrupt. Jesus said that his disciples would be required to hate their own lives to be his disciples. Right? Have you ever read that? You're like, what in the world? If any man come after me, let him hate his Wife, his mother, his father, his sister, brother, and his own life also, if he wants to be my disciple. You say, Jesus is telling us to hate living? No, Jesus isn't telling us to hate li living. Instead, he's warning us to hate the weak ways that we construct ourselves. And uh, this is hard in English to understand, but the New Testament Greek actually uses three different Greek words for our one English word, life. And each Greek word has its own distinct meaning. Uh, first, there's the Greek word bios, okay, B-I-O-S, which is physical existence, right? How many of you remember taking biology in high school? You remember that? How many of you remember one thing that you learned in biology? Why did so many hands not go back up? 
Yeah, so bios, physical existence, okay? Then the second Greek word is zoe, Z-O-E, and this means fullness of life. Uh, the life breathed into man as a living soul, uh, the abundant life that Jesus promises in John 10.10. 10. He said, listen, I didn't just come to give you life. I came to give you life more abundantly. And finally, there's the Greek word, Suke, P-S-U-C-H-E. Now, that's the one we're going to talk about because it means the inner self. And uh, the modern English equivalent is psyche, the deepest part of a rational being, uh, the identity. Jesus is calling his followers, and this is the actual Greek word uh, in the verse we, we read earlier, Jesus is calling his followers to lose their psyche to him. In essence, he's saying, lose your identity, the self you've constructed, and then you'll find your created self, your true identity, the masterpiece that I want to make of you. And I have to tell you, this never happens for most people, right? They never find out what Jesus made them to be because they're not willing to lose who they think they are. Yet it's such a difficult thing for us. Lose who you think you are, who you tell yourself you're supposed to be, who others expect you to be, and I will transform you into who you really are. And you've gone through times in your life where you tried to be who your parents thought you should be or who your teacher thought you should be, or who your girlfriend thought you should be, or who your boyfriend thought you should be, or who through a boss thought you should be. You know, we go through all these things, and Jesus says, listen, drop all of that, and then I'll make you. Remember Jesus said, hey, bring your ships to land and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's the one who shapes us. And if you attempt to define your own identity, you'll never really find it. But if you lose your identity to Jesus and the gospel, you find the solid identity that you most desire. Jesus is inviting us to lose our fragile psyches for something fulfilling and enduring. Now, we... Uh, we often think that this is asking too much, right? Modern Christianity is this, right? I'm going to add a little bit of God to my fragile self. I'm going to add a little bit of God to modify my life and make it better. That's not Christianity. Modern Christianity says that we prefer for God to improve us instead of make us new. Now that's uh, that's much too comprehensive and invasive for us. It's not an identity you construct. It's one that he creates, and it can't be achieved in your strength. We mentioned in week one that the gospel of Jesus doesn't only offer you a place in heaven. It brings you into a relationship with God who remakes the most sinful, broken, fragile part of who you are. The gospel isn't a door that you step through one time. It's an ocean you swim in every day. But could you trust God that much? 
You can't be found until you've first been lost. You hear the voices, they're out there on those boats, and Peter's sulking, and he's mad. He's mad at life. And all of a sudden, they hear, Hey, you guys catch anything? The voice echoed across the lake. Peter's still lost in his own frustration, and he's oblivious to the familiar tone of the voice. No! They shouted back, annoyed with the spectator on shore. Hey, if you guys throw that net over the right side of the ship, you'll find fish. They look at each other and roll their eyes. Who does this guy think he is? We are professional fishermen, right? But whatever, they're so tired, they threw the net over one more time, and suddenly the boat surged sideways. And they scrambled for balance. The net tightened, instantly filled with fish, 153 to be exact. It was a deja vu moment. This is exactly what had happened when Jesus first called Peter. And now, resurrected Jesus has come back to Galilee to draw Peter back to where it all began. John all of a sudden figured it out. And he pointed to the guy on shore, It's Jesus! Strangely, without thinking, Peter put on his cloak, irrationally dove into the water, and swam for the shore. Right? This is all in John 21. Uh, The cool waters of Galilee flowed across his face, mingling with his tears. There's a mixture of joy and fear simultaneously flooding his bottomed-out psyche. He didn't know what to do or what to say. He only knew that Jesus came to him. For him, maybe. Yes, he was numb to his own identity, but he knew who Jesus was. And as each stroke brought him closer to shore, his heart dared to hope again. Does Jesus want me back? Is the dream somehow still alive? Is there redemption for me after all? And seconds later, he sloshed his way on shore. Hesitating, because this was awkward. Now what? Jesus broke the silence. Hey, bring those fish you caught up here by the fire. I made you guys some breakfast. Come and eat. You may have noticed that for most men, maybe for some ladies too, food is an easy distraction from failure. Right? You lose a game, you go to the pizza joint. Right? <laughs> I mean, if, if you mess up at the job, uh, you go get some chicken wings together. And, and Jesus knows this. And so he said, hey, guys, come and eat. Come and dine. And remember the old hymn, come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. Uh, and so with, with little hesitation, these displaced followers of Jesus huddled around the morning fire. And one by one, Jesus handed them warm bread and grilled fish. Imagine this moment. He was dead. Now he's alive. It was real. 
This was Jesus in the flesh. He had voluntarily gone to Jerusalem to die. He had to lose himself for Peter so that Peter could ultimately, eternally be found. God calls this redemption. And he wants it to happen to you too. See, the resurrection defines everything for those who believe in Jesus. Prior to this moment, Peter was anything but a success. After this moment, success was con uh, conferred upon him in, in permanent, indescribable ways. Come close to the fire with me for a second. You smell the wood smoke, smell the fish, feel that Galilean morning sun, smell that seawater. Consider how precisely and personally Jesus planned this moment of transformation. As Jesus, Jesus began to completely remake Peter's identity. In week one, we said that there are three parts of identity. You know, Jesus uh, first gave Peter acceptance. As Jesus stretched out his nail-scarred hands to serve them one by one. Even though they'd failed him, he loved them and accepted them. Then, number two, there was security. He's providing for them. They had failed at fishing. They couldn't even provide for their families or pay their own bills. But he filled their nets with 153 fish, a precise and miraculous number that I'm sure they fully understood. And then number three, there was significance. He called them back into his purpose. They had given up on him. They'd walked away. They were disappointed that he wasn't writing the story they had hoped for. And I wonder how many people have called themselves Jesus followers and have walked away from Jesus because Jesus didn't write the story that they thought he should write. I've talked to people before. They say, I tried that Christianity thing once, and I prayed for a week that God would give me a new job, and he never did. You did for a whole week? Uh, that's pretty incredible, right? You made it a whole week. Some of you say, well, I prayed once that something would happen. It didn't happen. Well, amazing. All right, that's shocking stuff right there, right? People get disappointed in Jesus because he doesn't write the story that they think he should write. You say, Pastor, that's never happened to me. Well, let me tell you this. It happened to John the Baptist. It'll probably happen to you too. You're Jesus' cousins in prison about to be beheaded, and he sends his disciples to ask, hey, are you really the Messiah, or should we be looking for somebody else? Because he didn't know if the story that was being written was really God's story. The disciples had given up on Jesus, but Jesus had not given up on them. He was just getting started. And his resurrection reveals the bigger story now he invites them back in to the big picture. If you've ever feared a confrontation, you must know how Peter felt, right? It was the moment he feared, the confrontation he avoided. 
He deserved it. He blew it. He knew it. But Peter was sure that this was the public shaming, right? Where Jesus called him, handed him the fish, and then said, okay, Peter, it's over. I've replaced you with someone more reliable. And perhaps the other were people, people were glad that Jesus started in on Peter. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Jesus' tone was warm, and his scarred hands gestured toward the fish and toward his friends. And Peter said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Peter's embarrassed because his actions said otherwise, and he's expecting to be berated and rejected. And Jesus says, Feed my lambs. Wait, what? Then Jesus asks again. And then a third time. Peter deserved to be rejected, but Jesus accepted him. His failure brought insecurity, but Jesus secured him. His inner self was lost, but Jesus offered him new significance. That's our faith challenge. See, the Creator invited Peter back into the story of the ages, just like He does with us. Peter's accepted, forgiven, secured. But I don't want you to miss this. Peter did nothing to deserve or achieve this. It wasn't based on his effort. Jesus did the work. Peter will never be the same after this moment. And neither will you when this process unfolds in, in your life. It isn't until you lose who you think you are that Jesus can reveal who you really are. And it goes against everything life teaches us. All the other identity structures that tell us to live up to this or live up to that. And Jesus says, stop trying Lose yourself, lose your efforts, lose your hard work, lose your fragile ways of saving yourself. Stop pretending you've got everything figured out. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Jesus can justly ask us to lose ourselves. Now, don't miss this. You know why Jesus can ask us to lose ourselves? our psyche, because he did it first. He lost himself for us. He gave up being God, Philippians 2 says. He humbled himself and became of no reputation. It took upon him the death of a cross. The cross was humanity's worst poured out upon God's best so that God's best could forever be poured out upon believing humanity. Jesus has credibility when he asks us to lose ourselves for him. He did it first for us. And whatever it costs you to follow Jesus is nothing compared to what it cost him to be with you. There are so many people that, oh, I can't give my full self to Jesus. It cost me way too much. You know, that's a delusion. 
That's an illusion. When you get to eternity, that one's not going to make any sense. Right? I'm telling you, people in their minds are deceived so much. I can't give myself fully to do this. I'd have to give up the softball league. I'd have to give up the boys' night. I'd have to give up the girls' night. We'd have to give up this. We'd have to give up that. How about this? He gave up everything for you. And when you're willing to give yourself fully to Him, He will begin to put basic shapes on the canvas of your life. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at the shading on the canvas. The things that don't make sense in the big picture story of our lives. I hope you'll be here for it. Let's bow together. Father, thank you that we could come this morning and get into this incredible story of the life of Peter and how, Jesus, you personally went out of your way to bring him back into the big picture to redeem his story, to give him a fresh identity and a new perspective on life. And I pray that you would do the same thing with us as we bring our weary, broken selves before you. As we stumble on the shore, broken, humble, not knowing where to turn, and realize that you have invited us to come and dine to come into a relationship with you, a relationship of acceptance, forgiveness, significance. I pray that you'd guide us now through this week. As we continue in this series, I pray that you would help us to understand your big picture for each of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.